0: From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is The Beloved Community, resources for activism. I'm John Schock. Every second Friday at 9 a.m., I highlight individuals making a difference and building the beloved community. Today, I speak with Lynn Trainer, Bonnie Barksdale, and Kathy Fradkin. They are all actively involved in the Village Movement, a movement that is sweeping the country and is now firmly established in the Portland Metro. This village movement that started in Boston enables people to age in their own homes.
1: In the late 90s, there was a huge snowstorm in Boston, and a number of people who had lived in Beacon Hill in the Back Bay for decades uh, realized that if they were going to stay in their homes as they aged, that they needed some support. And so a group of them got together and talked about various options and came up with this concept of an age-in-place village where we would provide volunteers to help with things like transportation, errands, technology, the things that friends and family would do but that you might not have somebody close by to help with.
0: That's coming up in the second half of the show. My first guests are military historians. They've written a book about Oregon's Military history.
2: What I always say when I go out and I talk about Oregon's military history is you cannot know Oregon's history without knowing Oregon's military history, truly. You really cannot know Oregon's military history without knowing Oregon's history. They're so intertwined with each other that you learn from both.
0: That is Alicia Hamill. She along with Warren Ainey have co-written Oregon Military an Images of America series book. Both historians have served in the Oregon Army National Guard, including years spent as organizational historians. The book is filled with images from the collections of the Brigadier General James B. Thayer Oregon Military Museum, the Oregon Historical Society, County Historical Society's other regional and national collections, and the author's personal collections. Both are with me in the KBOO studio to talk about Oregon's military history. Welcome, Alicia Hamill and Warren Annie. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, tell me about this book uh, called "Oregon Military" in uh, the Images of America series. How did it come to be, and uh, how did you get involved in it?
3: Publisher is uh, does a series of books on they call Images of America, and uh, Arcadia Publishing is the publisher. But they contacted the military department, and said they wanted somebody to do a book on military history, so they gave them my name. And then I went in contact with Alicia, too, so we worked on it together.
0: Now, Warren, how long had you served in the
3: National Guard? About, well, the maximum. <laughs> I, I I always have to stop and figure it out, but it's, uh, it's, it's close to 50 years. Close to 50 Well, years. I'd say 43 years. And you've been
0: an Oregon military historian for some
3: time, too. Yeah, I, I was Mr. that was my last assignment, was staff historian for the Oregon military, uh, Oregon National Guard. And then uh, after I retired, they kept me on kind of on a consultant basis, so I'm doing projects for them now.
0: And Alicia, how long have you been in the Oregon National Guard? Are you still serving? I just retired on the 1st of July. Oh, congratulations. Thank you.
2: Yes. So I started in the Army Reserve in 364 Civil Affairs uh, at Sears Hall up in southwest Portland, but uh, I switched to the... Oregon National Guard when I got commissioned, or right before I got commissioned, and then I stayed in the Guard until a couple years ago, and then I switched back to the reserve. So I finished out my career at the Center of Military History back in Washington, D.C. as a reservist, but I was on active duty for a year of that time.
0: So you worked uh, then in Washington, D.C. with the Center of Military History. What was
2: your work there? I did as a reservist, so I don't actually work at, in uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. But... um, but I certainly back there often enough, so I was I I know the I know all the people back there. Uh-huh. The uh, yeah, yeah it was fascinating. The Center of Military History is the Army's center of Army history. So they have uh, three sections. They have a special project sec- section which goes out and collects the history, preferably during wartime. So they send units out to collect history during the actual battles or right after the battles are done they have a museum section which handles all the army's museums and uh, make sure that they all conform to certain standards and, and that they tell the army story and then they have a history section so that's where the historians are and that's who writes books and writes articles and, and compiles all of the information that's gathered through the special projects group brings it back and the historians make something of all that when he asked me to help him with this book, I was like, yes, of course. I, I want to be part of something with you, Warren.
3: Yes, and I love working with
0: you too. <laughs> and the book is uh, Oregon Military from the Images of American series. Tell me about the scope of the book.
3: I you know, tried to emphasize that Oregon military history does not start with the settlement. It goes back to the uh, Native American days. Those The, the tribes of, there were a, a huge variety of tribes in Oregon, something like 60 different groups, but uh, they were relatively peaceful, but they did, if necessary, uh, call out their warriors Mm -hmm. and do some uh, peacemaking or re reestablish the peace, but actually they were pretty peaceful because they didn't really need resources. The Oregon country provided them with the salmon they needed and the roots they needed and the fruit and the plants and the animals they needed for So they did not need to make war on their neighbors. The partial exception is southeast Oregon. The ones who were in the high desert area did have conflicts with some of the others because they were sharing some of the, particularly in the mountains, some of the food gathering areas.
0: The the book itself then moves into the uh, early uh, Indian Wars, 1847 to uh, 1856. Talk about this period a little bit. We have the Rogue Wars at this time. Well, what's happening in Oregon's history? Uh, Oregon isn't a state, of course, by then, but um, what's happening in this territory?
3: Well, Lewis and Clark came and discovered the good route. There was, and then the fur trappers came and actually discovered developed better, better, better rock, routes. There were also ships coming up and down the coast trading with the native peoples along the coast. And uh, then the settlers started arriving in the 1840s and soon had the Lyman Valley pretty well populated. The uh, native people that were here had been eliminated by disease, almost completely eliminated. So the Lyman Valley was kind of vacant. But there were other areas that weren't quite so vacant and conflicts did kind of uh, come up. In uh, 1847, the uh, Cayuse people on the Walla Walla River had a, in their air, in their place a mission, called the Whitman Mission by Dr. Marcus Whitman, and uh, they had some diseases come in that the settlers brought, and they died from them, and the settlers didn't die from them, but Dr. Marcus Whitman wasn't able to successfully treat the tribal people. And they thought well he must be doing this on purpose and so they well, a few of the cayuses got together and killed about 12 people at the White Whitman mission and that the Oregon settlers which had not been officially recognized as a territory yet but they did have an interim government did organize a regiment of mounted volunteers that went and tried to establish peace with the tribes and capture the uh, Offenders. Uh, they weren't very successful. They did end up having some battles, and uh, but eventually the the tribe did turn over the offenders, and and uh, that was the end of the, the Cayuse War. Gold was discovered in the Rogue Valley. Uh, the California miners came up, and some of the settler might went down there also, and they immediately had conflicts with the Indians that lived there there's, there's they were called the rogue indians because they were a little bit aggressive and that, so this
0: was obviously a settler name for them
3: yeah, it was a fur trapper name for fur the, trapper yeah, name yeah mm-hmm, yeah and uh, the
2: those rogues
0: uh, those
3: rogues that's where the idea comes from yes. okay mm-hmm. uh uh-huh. and that went on for almost 5 years until they they finally were able to Capture or get the surrender of the last tribes, the Oregon volunteers went down and helped the army do this, but uh, the war was started by miners and uh, the Indians trying to defend their territory and the uh, actually they surrendered the Indians and in were shipped north to a reservation in in the, in the north Northwest Oregon. The Yakima War started just soon afterwards, a violation of a treaty. Yeah, begin by the gold miners. who we were gold had been discovered in Washington, and they violated the reservation, and so that war went on for several months with the Oregon volunteers supporting the U.S. Army, and the Washington volunteers were also involved. And Oregon had become a territory by then, so that was the first three major conflicts before the Civil War era.
0: I'm speaking with uh, Warren Ainey and Alicia Hommel. They are Oregon uh, military historians, and their book uh, has been released called Images of America, Oregon Military. And uh, they're with me in the studio to talk about this book and this history of the Oregon military. Now, uh, you have uh, each of you have a specialty in terms of uh, or a special interest in terms of Oregon's history, some time period?
3: Well, I'm older, so I do the first part. and she, He's younger, <laughs> so he does the more recent history.
2: Yes, except for, of course, I did the whole Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. So I have a huge interest in the Lewis and Clark uh, expedition, and I f- kind of feel like I'm an expert on it. So I, I know a lot about Lewis and Clark. But And I did de- also develop a presentation about what Oregon did during the Civil War. So that's kind of a little fascinating Presentation because really what did Oregon do during well, the Civil Well, that
0: was that uh, was. Let's talk about that. Uh, let's go to Lewis and Clark first, um, and, and I just kind of want to follow because of the uh, the conflicts between natives and, and white settlers. But first of all, there wasn't really a lot of conflict. The Lewis and Clark era was really uh, peaceful and cooperative. Would you say?
2: Oh yeah,
3: it was. And yes, it definitely was because they were when they came over the Rocky Mountains and encountered the ne- what we call the Nez Perce tribe. Uh, Poo is what they call themselves. They uh, welcomed Lewis and Clark, and in fact, they, they were, uh, had run out of food, and so they gave them food and place to stay, and helped them build boats. And then, when they came back and returning back east, they uh, hosted them again for a few weeks.
2: And I think because of that interaction that they had with Lewis and Clark at the beginning, where they were peaceful, um, there was a lady with the Lewis and Clark, or with the with the Nez Perce called Wat Kouwais, who had been captured as a child and sent back east and uh, was treated very kindly by the whites and was able to make it back to her people. And she is the one that saved Lewis and Clark when they came out on the expedition, when they came out of the mountains, all starving to death. And because the Nez Perce were saying they have weapons, they have stop. Let's just kill them. And they're starving. They're, it's easy to kill them. But she goes, no, you can't kill that. Kill them because the white men are good people. So they made friends with the Nez Perce. And it was interesting that the Nez Perce really didn't fight against the white advancement into their, their country until much, much later. They were yeah. a very late Indian War. Um, but Lewis and Clark continued on down and and didn't really appreciate the Indians too much around the Dalles because the Indians around the Dalles were very much, what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours, and that kind of goes counter to mm. kind of a, a white American background. <laughs>
0: so a bit of a culture clash on how, uh, how things are shared.
2: Exactly, yes. <laughs> and then they make it down to the mouth of the Columbia River. They spend the winter at Fort Clatsop, and they of those four months that they were at Fort Clatsop, only 12 days were, were without rain. Only six days had sun, so they really did not enjoy their time at Fort Clatsop and were quite happy to head back up the river. So they leave Fort Clatsop on March 23rd and head back up and then spend some extra time with the Nez Perce before they go back over the the Rocky
0: Mountains. You know, what what is Cape disappointment? What does that refer to?
2: It refers to the fact that they thought they were at the Pacific Ocean. And they weren't there yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were quite disappointed. And then they were stuck there for quite a number of days because they couldn't get around it. And so they thought they would they would make it almost to the Pacific Ocean and then they're just gonna die in this little inlet that wouldn't let them get around it. There was no there was cliffs on the other side of it, there were waves on the on the river side of it and they were just stuck there.
0: Now, I want to uh, move into the ne- the next part, the Civil War, um, and, and Oregon's role there, uh, if there was one. Tell me about that.
2: Really, Oregon's biggest role in the Civil War was the fact that they became a state. Oregon okay. became a state in 1859. Oregon very much was a southern sympathizer state. And so when they decided to come in as a state, there was a lot of controversy as to whether they would come in as a free state or a slave state, because they are a Southern sympathizer state. But a lot of the people from the South had moved into Oregon to get away from slavery. So they were not real big supporters of slavery. So Oregon's original constitution says Oregon will come in as a free state, but no blacks were to be allowed in the state. And if you were black, and if you were in the state of Oregon, you were to be whipped every single day until you left. No one was actually whipped, but that stayed on Oregon's original constitution until 1912.
0: So, really, it started uh, with heavy racism. Oh, yes. Well, yeah,
3: exclusive racism, I guess you would say. Uh, It's kind of interesting, though. It wasn't entirely exclusive because there was a uh, case where a slave did come to Oregon. He went down to the miners in the Rogue Valley, played his fiddle, made enough money that he could purchase his freedom, then came back up and settled near Corvallis. And before he left... He joined one of the volunteer units and served with the volunteer unit in some of the last few battles during the Rogue Wars. So he was really the Oregon's first, or Oregon, the Oregon military's first black member. They have a photo of him in here. Uh, yes, from yes. Uh, Lou
2: black. Southworth is yeah. his name.
3: Yep, yep, Lou
0: Southworth. Yep.
2: We're very proud of the fact that we, or I'm very proud of the fact that Warren found that information. That's. Yeah.
0: This is filled with photographs. How did you uh, collect all these photographs? Oh gosh, that's uh,
3: well. I had been doing military history projects that used the illustrations for a long, quite a while, uh, both oral presentations and poster presentations and things like that. And I so I collected copies of a lot of the fo- made copies of a lot of the photos that are in the collection of the Oregon Military Museum. I also went to the state archives and made some copies of what they had, and visited a number of local historical societies to make copies of what they had. And I also, of course, got copies from private collections also. So it was, and the major source of the images was the Oregon Historical Society and the Oregon Military Museum.
0: I'm speaking with Warren Ainey and Alicia Hamill. They're Oregon military historians, and their book is called Oregon Military. It's the uh, Images of America series. Oregon becomes a state in 1859, and it's really the Civil War that makes this happen, because they have to make a decision on what they're going to be. So, who's, who are the political players behind making that happen?
3: U.S. Army troops that were in Oregon all went back to fight in the Civil War. Uh-huh. And so the governor was asked to raise a replacement regiment, and he
2: Governor Whitaker
3: to take the place of the U.S. Army while the U.S. Army was gone for the. Oregon military.
2: Yeah, Oregon's claim to fame for a political person involved in the Civil War is Senator Baker, Senator Edward Baker, very good friends of uh, President Lincoln, and he actually, when Civil War started, he was back as Oregon Senator, and Civil War started, and he volunteered to lead troops into battle at a place called Battle of Balls Bluff. As, As he leads the troops into battle as Colonel Baker, he's killed, so he is the only... Acting senator ever to be killed in battle. He's such good friends with President Lincoln that President Lincoln actually names one of his children after Edward Baker. Is that right? Edward Lincoln is named after Edward Baker.
0: After the Civil War, and we turn to the uh, later Indian Wars, that's a heading in your book, um, you count this period 1872 uh, to 1880, um, and they have a a number of that. You have the What, the Modoc War? Yes. And then the Nez Perce later, and then the Bannock Paiute. But in the Modoc War, there's something called, uh, that came up in the photographs of a peace commission.
3: I mentioned earlier that there were some conflicts between Southeast Oregon tribes because they were a little short on, that was pretty, that was desert country. And the Modoc did compete with Klamath tribes and some other tribes for resources. But the government federal government met with him and for, tried to f- force him onto the Klamath reservation that had been re- been established they wanted to have their own reservation but they they said no you go to the Klamath reservation and that didn't work out so they uh, quite a few several of the modoc a bunch of the modoc left the reservation went off t- to where they wanted he lived before and the army came and chased them into the, the lava beds area in northern California, which is uh, the, a good good place to defend yourself because the army took took them several months before they were able to succeed in defeating the Modocs. But the uh, leader of the Modocs,
2: Captain Jack,
3: there was a peace commission being set up, not commission, peace treaty, and Captain Jack and some of the Modocs actually pulled guns out and killed the leader of the uh, General Canby and uh, wounded a couple other people that escalated the war to the point where the US Army finally defeated them the settlers and the government people had a range of attitudes in how to uh, work with the tribal the Indians and Native Americans Uh, it ranged from accommodation let them live here And do what they do best. Uh, The mission, the church missionaries, they generally took on the concept of let's convert them all into Christian farmers and put them to work on the land. And the kind of the next level was let's well let's put them on treaty and engage in treaties and put them on reservations, and then free that'll free up the rest of the land for the settlers. But there were people in Oregon, government people and settlers, who thought we should annihilate them. And so when the Cayuse War started, the there was some talk about annihilation and there was some talk about it to accommodate with, and the provisional legislature did organize a peace commission. There was three, three people who preceded the regiment of mounted horsemen. They negotiated with all the tribes on the way to East, to Eastern Oregon, and got them to stand stand aside until they got to the Cayuse Reservation area, and the Cayuse came out, and the leader of the regiment, who was actually a uh, uh, he fought in some of the Midwest Indian Wars and was kind of tended more towards the annihilation concept, he made the feast. Pulled the commission, Peace Commission back and went and engaged the Indians in the first battle of the big battle of the Cayuse War.
2: So the interesting thing about these Indian fighters that fought in the Bannock Pai War mm-hmm. and the Nez Perce and the other Indian wars is they had children. So when the Spanish-American War came along and Oregon was required to to put together a, a unit to be sent off to fight in the Spanish-American War, these were the sons of those Indian fighters. And they go into the Philippines, and they still have that vision of Indian fighting. And they encounter the Filipinos, and they they kind of put that Native American. And they
0: regard them in, in the same way? Yes, they did. We want to move a little bit through the, the 20th century, but tell me kind of in general, uh, as we move to the other aspects of Oregon's military history, what stands out?
2: Of course, World War I is a big one. But Oregon, Oregon National Guard, 41st Infantry Division, at, for, it was 41st Division at the time, um, that's where they come into being. They head over to fight in World War I, but they arrive and they are no longer needed as a division, so they're made into a replacement division. A lot, some of the units within the division stay together and fight during World War I, but Oregon doesn't have that big role in World War I like a lot of other states would have. So really, World War II is where Oregon National Guard really makes a big, big statement. In World War II, Oregon had the 41st Infantry Division, which was an Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana National Guard Infantry Division that was considered the best National Guard Infantry Division in the United States prior to World War II. They had gone to some competitions. They had won the competitions against all the active duty Infantry divisions they fought against But uh, they couldn't be better than the Active Duty Division so They had to be the best National Guard Division Ah, (laughs) (laughs) So on September 16th, 1940 Over a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor 41st Infantry Division Is activated because President Roosevelt feels that something is going to happen. So they're activated. They head up to Fort Lewis to train. These guys are think, they're on active duty for a year. So they're like, we're over the hill in October. So they would write Ohio on everything, over the, over hill, the hill in, in October. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course, when it came time, they're like, no, no, no. We don't want to get out. We want to stay in. So 40, on December seventh, nineteen 1941, when Pearl Harbor is attacked, 41st Infantry Division's very first mission is to guard the coastline, the Oregon and Washington coastline, because the Americans thought for sure that the Japanese were going to continue on and attack the west coast of the United States. The Japanese did attack eventually the west coast of the United States and did attack into Oregon. They they lobbed shells at Fort Stevens, uh, the United States only from a submarine. From a submarine, okay. they send an airplane off that same submarine. bomb uh, outside of Brookings, Oregon. They send balloon bombs over. The only casualties during World War II happen in Oregon outside of Bly, where a Sunday school teacher and and five Sunday school students were killed by that balloon bomb when they went up for a picnic after church one day. Um, So Oregon does get attacked, but not right after Pearl Harbor. Right after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese went back And they took some additional land. They ended up fighting for the Philippines, getting that. But the 41st Infantry Division guards that coastline. And I have to tell you a quick story. Uh, Part of that guarding of the coastline, one night they thought for sure that the Japanese were coming. And they could see them coming in through the waves in the middle of the night. And so they shot them all up. And the next morning they discovered those Japanese were really Christmas trees that had come off of a ship that had wrecked off of the Oregon coast. <laughs> so I will say none of those Christmas trees made ashore alive either.
0: <laughs> uh, Alicia Hamill and uh, Warren Ainey are my guests. Uh, the Oregon military, it's the Images of America, uh, the military history of Oregon. Uh, I'm just going to jump way up here. to. I, was, I found this very interesting during the Vietnam War, um, an Operation Tranquility. Now, were you in the National Guard then yes, at that time, Yes, I was, time, and I or? served
3: during that period. Tell me about that. Okay, uh, the Vietnam War was not a very popular war with a lot of people in this country, and so there were demonstrations that were sometimes violent. Then the American Legion Convention was going to come to Portland, and uh, anti-war people were taking that as an opportunity to demonstrate, and Governor McCall stepped in, uh, organized what's called Vortex One, which was a rock festival on the Upper Clasphemous River, and these people were invited, and several thousand showed up there rather than in Portland for the demonstration, but the National Guard was called out, served during the period of the uh, American Legion Convention, but was there was never any need for uh, their service to protect the community or or protect the demonstrators, the uh, National Guard ended up just sitting back and watching what went on. And the uh, Vortex One was hailed as a great success by people here in Oregon and also elsewhere in the country. And I I, I was an intelligence officer, so I I remember just sitting around waiting for something to happen. <laughs> Only damage was one broken window.
0: (laughs) Did I read that right in the book, that um, work of the National Guard with demonstrations wasn't armed? Well, that was
3: interesting because uh, before there had been demonstrations elsewhere in the United States where there was actual armed uh, conflicts. Well, we think
0: Uh, about Kent State, for example. Yeah, for example,
3: Kent State, the National Guard there, did shoot at some of the demonstrators, and one of the demonstrators was killed. So we were trained in using... Not rifles, but and ban but rather riot control sticks that were were just wooden sticks that they they never needed it, but the, they were trained to face the demonstrators with with pieces or, and and make them peaceful rather than to increase the violence.
0: I want to give you an opportunity to talk about kind of your own um, interest in this. What, what would be just broad open questions for both of you. What's unique about Oregon's military history and, and what would you like people to know about Oregon's military history?
2: Well, What I always say when I go out and I talk about Oregon's military history is you cannot know Oregon's history without knowing Oregon's military history truly. You really cannot know Oregon's military history without knowing Oregon's history. They're so intertwined with each other that you learn from both and to find out who we are today and why we became who we are. So Oregon military history is a very important part of Oregon's history, and I think everybody should have a good idea of of what transpired through time to be able to make us who we are.
3: I feel the same way because the Oregon military was a result, a lot of their actions was a result of the culture that we lived in at the time. So there was some violence in response, but there was, like the Operation Tranquility, there was also uh, a peaceful reaction to that. The role of the military is important and needs to be recognized.
2: So many communities throughout the state have armories in their community. They were the center for that community. Oregon's military is part of our, all of our communities.
0: Warren Ainey and Alicia Hamill, my guests, they put together this beautiful book called Oregon Military, Images of America. Thank you both for uh, for your work and for being with me today. Thank you. You're listening to The Beloved Community. The Beloved Community is heard every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Schock. What happens when you or an aging parent finds it more and more difficult to maintain a home? Is the only choice moving to a retirement home or placing a burden on family members or others to do the things around the home that can't be done any longer? My next three guests are active in the village movement, aging in place. In the KBU studio are Lynn Trainer, the managing director of Villages Northwest, and Bonnie Barksdale and Kathy Fradkin, who are volunteers and members and leaders of Viva Village in Beaverton. Welcome. Welcome to the beloved community good for having us i would start with uh lynn first uh what (laughs) this is uh, the the village i don't know what the phrase is village movement i keep thinking of village people but uh it's not (laughs) quite that but this is an age in place movement that started in boston and and is now in portland can you talk about how it started
1: Sure. In the late 90s, there was a huge (laughs) snowstorm in Boston. And a number of people who had lived in Beacon Hill in the Back Bay for decades uh, realized that if they were going to stay in their homes as they aged, that they needed some support. And so a group of them got together and talked about various options and came up with this concept of an age-in-place village where we would provide volunteers to help with things like transportation, errands, technology, the things that friends and family would do, but that you might not have somebody close by to help with.
0: Because now we live in a time in which uh, people don't have family close by. Parents may live across the country or or even across the state. And so the idea of the aging in place is that people, when they get to the point where they can't take care of their lawn or they can't take care of some home repairs, they're able to use volunteers so they don't have to go to, say, um health uh, healthcare facility or a, a retirement home.
1: Right. And one of the challenges is, you know, even if they have family close, often um, fam- people are having children later. And so the adult children are still raising their families. We have two family incomes, so they're working full time. And Family time is being spent more and more on chores as parents age rather than on family time. And so the concept for the village is can we help with some of those things so that the senior still has autonomy and can do things on their schedule rather than having to rely as much on their families. And so it's a really um, nice thing to be able to do. One woman that I talked with recently, uh, her grandson always maintains her deck. And last fall, you'll remember that the rains came very early, and he was taking finals and didn't get around to doing it. And so she called the village, and they came out and restained the deck before the weather turned too bad. So that was, that was an example of being able to, for her to control when things were done and not to feel dependent on the family
0: and uh so this movement began in boston now it's it's nationwide um i noticed on the website there were 110 villages but it's more than that now right
1: yes there are uh, over 200 villages open across the country and another 150 in development and about 44,000 members
0: and when did it uh, come to the portland metro
1: it started in the portland area about six years ago when a woman came back to portland from Uh, San Francisco and where they'd had villages and she's like there is no village here why is there not a village I need to start one and her background was in nonprofits and marketing and so she went out and started talking to people and all of a sudden people began knocking on her door going how do I get how do I do this too and so she decided that she was gonna help start multiple villages here which is how we came to the concept of Villages Northwest, which is a single 501c3 corporation, and all of the villages in the greater Portland area, which are now eight, operate under that
0: corporation. Eight villages so far uh, here, and some are still being developed?
1: Two of the eight are still in development. Two
0: of the eight are in development, so six are already up and running.
1: And And the ones that are in development are while they're developing, they are doing social activities. So there are things that people can get involved with. They can help build the village. It usually takes two or three years to build the grassroots support to open a village to services.
0: I'm speaking with Lynn Trainer. She's the managing director of Villages Northwest, talking about the the new aging-in-place villages that are becoming more and more popular and developing here in the Portland metro. I also have with me Kathy Fradkin, who is a member and volunteer in Governing Council and member of Viva Village. And Kathy is the person uh, who I met a couple of years ago as you we were getting a village started in the Beaverton area. Uh, Kathy, tell me about how this uh, uh, the village started in, in Beaverton
4: okay about four four years ago, the founder of uh, Villages Northwest um, wanted to um, wanted to get more people involved from other um, communities in Portland metro area. Beaverton was one of those communities. One of our members, our founding members, uh, was very excited about spearheading this, and so she did. And um, through uh, one person um, starting this, it just grew and grew and grew through good marketing, tremendous enthusiasm from her as well as other people jumping on board. And we started a planning group and it grew from one person to 50 people to 200 people to over 400 people now on, um, on the distribution list. So more and more people became involved and we started uh, developing and planning for the launch of Viva Village.
0: And that started uh, just this last year, didn't it?
4: Yes, we opened up in October of last year, and we started with 30 memberships, and now we have almost 60 memberships, and um, we're very excited to uh, continue with the, uh, the memberships as well as with solid um, opportunities for volunteers um, to help meet the needs of those members.
0: Great. Thank you, Kathy. And Bonnie Barksdale is a, is a member and a volunteer. And on the, on the council, you, you wear all three hats.
5: I do. Uh, when I went to the orientation meeting for Viva Village, I was very marginally interested in it. I thought, well, maybe I could help once a month or something to, to help someone. And uh, when I heard the whole idea presented, I thought this is really a great idea and so we, uh, I, as I read more about it, I wanted to be involved and wanted to use the skills I had uh, in my former professional life. Uh, I was a school librarian and had done a website. so we my husband and I um, decided we would help with the website, and that's how it's been all along with uh, so many of us that are in Viva Village. We are using the skills that we have to to help um, new members.
0: and that uh... Uh, website is villagesnw.org?
5: That's the overall website of of our um, umbrella organization, and then each of the villages has their own website, and ours is vivavillage.org. So how big
0: is the geographic area of each village?
1: It it ranges um, based on the sort of natural boundaries. Our newest village is called Willow. It's in the Westland Lake Oswego area so it's basically the boundaries of those two um, communities. Uh, We have two very large villages. One is in Clark County, Washington and it encompasses the entire Clark County. In uh, western Washington County we have a village that goes from um, Aloha, it includes Aloha, Hillsboro, Forest Grove and Cornelius.
0: And you have some in Portland as well.
1: Yes, we have villages in, in addition to the Viva in uh, Beaverton. We have Northeast Portland. We have Southeast Portland. We have North Portland and Southwest Portland.
0: Give me a story about why um, this village is, is really helpful and how it can make the difference between being able to age in your home as having to move to a retirement facility.
5: Well, I could I could speak to that. Um, our members receive help so that they can safely and affordably stay in their own homes and be comfortable as well and thrive. Um, so we, we provide services that are necessary for them, but sometimes the services we p- provide are just helping them to thrive. And so, for example, um, I had someone come and help me in my garage, organize my garage. I walk with a walker, so I couldn't get to all the parts of my garage, and they fixed it so I could, so I could help myself, but it didn't take all my energy, and I, and I made a new friend when th- that person came. Uh, so our members receive help making simple repairs in their homes, uh, changing light bulbs or hanging pictures, and maybe not just hanging pictures, but um, we have a, some people that are more skilled at decorating, and they can actually help us a really good job with the hanging of the pictures and organizing them. We have, um, we can get help organizing files and paperwork, cleaning closets, um, organizing the garage as I mentioned, um, providing occasional light yard work. We we don't replace your weekly lawn mowing service, but we can help with leaf, um, raking leaves and weeding. I had someone come and help me clean the refrigerator. And we, we I made a good friend as she looked at all my dates of my sauces that I had in there from my <laughs> Chinese sauces that I hadn't used in a while. Uh-huh. And uh, I was left with a new friend and a, a sparkling refrigerator. So we also, uh, our members get transportation to medical appointments or grocery shopping and social events, uh, going to church or visiting a friend. Um, and there's personal support too if a, if a member... Maybe they've uh, had surgery and they need someone to check in on them. We, we'll make a phone call daily, uh, visit just to chat. Um, help, I had help with a sewing project. I, had, I can't lean over and cut, it, cut things. I, I can lay it out, but I can't cut it out. So someone came in and cut out a blouse that I wanted to sew. And then uh, this is something for our younger members uh, that they really love is the technology support. Um, All of us love that, assistance with computers and tablets and phones and um, any kind of digital thing like setting up a thermostat. A lot of our members live by themselves. So sometimes it's hard to figure things out by yourself. And if you have another person come that has some expertise, it's a a huge difference to, to make you be able to stay in your home.
0: And um, it, you mentioned more than one time about making a new friends. So mm-hmm. really that idea of making that uh, human connection is so important, yeah. isn't it? And, and I would imagine that one of the skills that will be used a lot is transportation because many times people are, aren't able to drive anymore and yeah. getting around.
1: Well, and about 65% of our services are transportation at this point. Uh, half of those are for medical appointments, but as Bonnie said... You, We want life to be as normal as possible, so we have some people that use it because they love to go to the Keller to a show, but they don't want to drive downtown anymore, or they don't drive at night, and they still want to go to their book club and see their friends. I have a friend whose mother's in her 90s, and she still sleeps a week, and the facility where she is living no longer does a run to the swimming pool because she's the only resident that wants to go. So a village could do that to help her stay healthy.
0: Now, if there are somebody who might be, I might be interested in being a member, but I'm kind of wondering, well, who are the volunteers? And and how do I know I'm letting them in my house? Uh, How how do you work uh, in terms of screening? Sure. Well,
1: volunteers are a variety of people. Over half of our members are volunteers. We also encourage younger volunteers because, for example, I have, I have a filter under my kitchen sink that needs to be changed and the likelihood that I'm going to crawl into that corner is pretty much zero. And I would love to have, and my plumber's 80 years old, so he's not going to do it anymore. So I need to find somebody who will do that job once every couple of years, you know? So we're looking for people with a variety of skill sets. We do do background checks, uh, level three criminal background checks. It's a national search
4: on all of our volunteers. Another volunteer activity that's used quite a bit is what Bonnie mentioned with technology. So when you get somebody who is very expert in uh, computers, laps- laptops, um, smart TVs, you're looking at 30 to $50 an hour. And our volunteers, many of them are retired technicians, and um, they're very sharp, and it comes second nature to them. So they come in, and they... Um, help with any technology and um, and that again is you know they might spend an hour that's $50 saved you that's already one month of, of membership so uh, because the services are are so um, expensive that it's it really pays off very quickly
0: I'm speaking with Lynn Trainer and Bonnie Barksdale and Kathy Fradkin. They are all working with uh, Villages Northwest. This is a nationwide movement and, and is now quite popular in Port- Portland, uh, Portland Metro. We have eight different villages, uh, six already running and two uh, being developed. That uh, aging in place village, and that allows people to live in their own home. Now, how long might this go? Is does it ever provides, for example, nursing care?
1: No, we are not professional medical providers. We, we want to fill in the gaps between those other services. What we know is that about 90% of Americans plan to stay in their homes as they age. And most of them can with the help of a village uh, to help with some of those things. Obviously, if your health fails to the point where you need a high level of medical care, people are not going to be able to stay in their homes. And so what we hope is that by keeping them in their homes as long as possible where they want, they will preserve their assets and the time and the resources will be available when they get to a point that they need a higher level of care.
0: And I have another question. Um, you know, Portland, uh, the metro, is we're facing um, – People call it a housing crisis. We have rents uh, going way up, housing prices going way up, and I'm thinking of, of perhaps an elderly person uh, in her home, let's say, or his home, and uh, it's a big house. And, and there may be people who uh, would like to, who need housing. Um, is there any conversation about how those kinds of things might work out?
1: At this point, it's informal. Uh, in my village, we have a woman in her 90s who lives in a, in a rather large house, and her family would like somebody else on the premises. And so she has talked with village members who are looking for housing. We also have a lot of people in our community who have worked all their lives. A lot of them are older women who um, became single parents at some point in their lives. They don't have a lot of financial resources. And they're looking for affordable housing. And we've had, you know, we've had people that are in in the last year here in Portland. We hear story after story of people who are being priced out of their housing. And so, I am familiar with a program that's being um, resurrected by Ecumenical Ministries in conjunction with Elders in Action, where they are looking to start matching people again. And uh, they are right now looking for landlords, and beginning this month, they will start taking applications for people who are looking for housing.
0: A lot of the benefit that I'm seeing already are the connections being made, uh, conversations about people's needs and people's assets, working people together in a rather disconnected sometimes society. Uh, the village is, is, is a wonderful metaphor and and a reality for making those connections, isn't it?
5: People are actually excited to volunteer for the village, and we have, I, I believe at latest count, we have 14 different people that are volunteering in our office so um, if a member would like to have co-housing and it has an interest in that, they can communicate that to the office. And then informally, that, that there could be connections made. Also on our website, we have an open forum, an open discussion forum, where a member could go on and just post a message about needing housing or being able to offer housing so that those connections can be made that way.
0: So how uh, is the Portland Metro pretty well covered now? or are, are there areas that need to be uh, developed yet?
1: We do have some gaps uh, in, in the area, uh, and we are looking to develop in a longer term. You know, We've been active really for about four years now, and we have nine simultaneous startup organizations, so we have plenty to do. Mm-hmm. But some of the areas where if we can find a group to come together, Gresham, for example... Milwaukee, Oregon City, uh, Tigard, Tualatin, and the downtown Portland core area, Northwest
0: Portland. My guests uh, today, Lynn Trainer, Managing Director of Villages Northwest. Bonnie Barksdale is a member, volunteer, and governing council member of Viva Village. Uh, that's the one that's in Beaverton. And then Kathy Fradkin, a member, volunteer, and governing council member also of Viva Village. And this exciting village movement that is working to connect people, allow people to stay in their homes, uh, build community because they're local. You get to know your neighbors. You volunteer. You become a member. And... Uh, anything else.
5: You might wonder, what what does the membership fee go for? And uh, I would like maybe Len could tell us.
1: Well, our goal is to have Villages be active, thriving organizations uh, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Uh, what we Many of us who are involved now do not need an awful lot of services, but we will need them in 10 or 15 years. So we want to lay that foundation. And in order to do that, we are going to need paid staff for continuity. So right now, the expenses go toward things like uh, marketing materials, the background checks for volunteers, insurance, training, uh, things like that. Most of the villages within a couple of years after opening, their core group of volunteers who've been running it are beginning to get tired, and so they need some paid staff to supplement that. We have put together a group of vetted vendors that are vetted by our villagers. Uh, There are over 40 companies now and these are for things that are beyond our scope. So, um, for example, we have volunteers that are retired contractors and they can go out and they might be able to do a small electric thing or a small plumbing thing, but they're gonna look at it and go, no, this is something where you really need to have a professional do that. So then they can call the office and ask for a plumber or an electrician or a contractor to come out and help. And we have vetted those people. The other service that we provide is we can send a volunteer to be with a member when that vetted vendor comes to do the initial um, inspection and bid or to be on site.
0: Because so. that, that's a very good point because uh, certainly uh, those who are in their home, aging at home, can be uh, a bit vulnerable.
1: And sometimes you you don't know the questions to ask, you know, and so if you can have somebody who knows a little bit more about roofing than you when you have that roofer come over, you know they can help you ask the questions you need.
5: I just wanted to be sure and tell you about a um, an event that's coming up we have uh, we try to have big events at least four times a year where people can we can invite new people to come and hear about the village but also prevent, present information. And uh, it just so happens we're having an identity theft event October the 21st in the senior center in Beaverton. But the, the interesting coincidence is that while we were meeting with the sheriff, uh, then the fraud detective, uh, he got a text, and he pulled out his his tech, his tech machine, little texter, and he said, oh, we have an Equifax breach. And so the, the news of the Equifax breach of... Spilling out 143 million identities to everybody <laughs> uh, happened while we were there talking with him about our identity theft event. Huh. So there, it's going to be quite an interesting event. We'll be able to find out simple steps that we can take to protect ourselves from identity theft and scams.
0: Speaking there is Bonnie Barksdale, member of volunteer and governing council, member of, of Viva Village. My guests uh, Kathy Fradkin and Lynn Trainer talking about the uh, aging in home village movement that is uh, sweeping across the country as as well as Portland.
4: There's there's really three major components of the village movement. One is the services that we've already talked about. Another one is the, the screen professionals that Lynn just talked about. Those are two very valuable and, and well-used components. Another one is events. So, Bonnie, can you talk a little bit about the scope of, of events? Because this is, again, another way that we build community and um, uh, get to educate ourselves as well. Some of the big events that we've had are uh, fitness event. Um,
5: at the Senior Center where we learned ways uh, seniors can exercise and stay fit. We've had earthquake preparedness presented by uh, Beaverton, the CERT um, communicator. We've had an organization event presented by a professional organizer. We've had garden events that give us ideas for tools and plants that help seniors maintain their gardens. Um, one of our best events, I think, was a gift of caring where we had one of the authors of the book, Gift of Caring, come and tell us how we can advocate for ourselves and for other people in the medical community. And uh, one thing I learned from that is that uh, dehydration is a big problem with seniors, and I should watch for that in other people. And it it actually gives you the symptoms of dementia when you're dehydrated. So we don't want that uh, when we go to the doctor, do we? (laughs) Um, So in in our uh, village, we also have small events that are... um, like a nature walk, a TED Talk luncheon, men's coffee. We have a dine around event where we go to a different uh, cafe each month. Uh, we're going to go on the senior safari with the zoo where they let us in free for a, a day. Uh, we go to the light opera. Um, we go to we have uh, gone several times to the Northwest Senior Theater for events. We've uh, we do th- socials once a month where. Kind of the same people tend to come to that event. Uh, the same people tend to come to the book club event. So uh, it's a way to make friends, because you know that, that the same people are going to be at that event. And, and it's a way of building community.
0: What about rural areas? Is, is the village movement connected at all with rural areas in the country?
1: Oh, absolutely. There are, um, there's a village in um, Massachusetts called Nauset Neighbors that was one of the early villages. They're entirely rural. Um, there's a village in Bend. There's a village in Ashland. I even talked with a woman recently who had started a village in Creswell, Oregon, and they had four members. And, yeah. and so uh, I've heard, I think, down in the Brookings or Bandon area, there's also a group coming together.
0: We're talking about the... Aging in Place Village, and my three guests are from the uh, Lynn, Kathy, and Bonnie are from Villages Northwest. That website, again, is villagesnw.org. Thank you all for being with me today.
4: Thank you, John.
0: The Beloved Community is heard every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I speak with people who are working to build the Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. If you have ideas for guests or thoughts about the program, email me at johnshuck at KBU.fm. For a podcast of this show, go to kboo.fm slash beloved community. Be well.